Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics... Two people are killed in Poland as Russia launches dozens of missiles into Ukraine. Is this an act of war that will provoke greater NATO action? We'll get some early analysis. Also. There was talk about, you know, do you change leadership? Do you change police? The RCMP commissioner takes the stand. Did Brenda Lucky think the Emergencies Act was needed? And. So this seems like a lot of needless pain on working people right now in Canada. We'll speak to the head of Unifor and ask why she believes the Bank of Canada is engaging in a class war. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. We begin with a developing story tonight, and it comes to us from a town in Poland near the Ukrainian border. Now, according to local reports, two people are dead after a missile struck that town, and it happened as Russia launched dozens of missiles at targets right across Ukraine. No confirmation yet if the missile was from Russia, but Ukraine's president is calling the hit an attack on collective security. Poland is a NATO ally, and the question is, how will NATO now respond? For its part, Russia's defense ministry says it did not strike any targets in or near Poland. Well, we're now reaching out to Robert Baines. He's the president and the CEO of the NATO Association of Canada. Mr. Baines, thank you for joining us. A pleasure, Michael. Listen, I want to begin uh, with the early reaction that we're seeing to this reported missile strike. Uh, what might be happening right now uh, behind closed doors of NATO leadership? Well, it's uh, NATO is always a deliberative organization. It is based by a simple idea that an attack upon one is an attack upon all. Uh, I think most people know that by now. But it, Getting all 30 parties to agree on anything is always a delicate and uh, very essential process. So that is the whole point of the closed doors. Uh, Right now, you're going to have a lot of information being ferried back and forth. Uh, Minister Anand today in Parliament was saying that she was just hearing the information, so wasn't going to speculate. There have been many, many repeats of that uh, throughout uh, different NATO countries and their ministers waiting Uh, for some concrete evidence to find out what is going on before there is actual action. Uh, The key is here that NATO has prepared itself for this eventuality uh, for quite some time, since February 24th, essentially. Uh, NATO's goal is to protect every inch of its territory from an aggressor. And in this case, of course, uh, Russian missiles have been Uh, If not expected, then it's been concerned that they would be uh, hitting Poland just because it's so close to Ukraine. Uh, So NATO has been prepared for this. Uh, There are going to be discussions about exactly what the nature of these uh, projectiles were. Uh, and it will be acting accordingly in a, in a number of different ways. Well, and, and to that, there are details that are missing, key details. Was this uh, a Rus- Russian missile? Was it off target? Or uh, was it meant to hit this Polish town? How will those details affect the kind of reaction that we're going to see? 
Well, regardless, even before those details come to light, NATO is almost certainly going to be enacting what's called Article 4, which is a rallying cry, more or less, to make sure that uh, everybody in the alliance is aware that there is a major security um, uh, issue going on at the moment, an incident, uh, and that this must be discussed and uh, appropriately responded to. So it's the way for NATO to, uh, without doing anything belligerent, uh, to at least raise the alarm to make sure that everybody is, is aware of what's going on. So that will almost certainly happen uh, tomorrow. Uh, but right now there are investigators on the ground. Uh, the key here being that there has to be some very hard evidence as to what these missiles or projectiles were. If it was a drone that could be targeted easily, or if it was just a missile that could have uh, simply gone off track, that is going to change things significantly. Uh, so Article 4 will be able to help uh, direct these investigations and to make sure that there's a united response. Uh, anytime there is a inexact information or an incomplete picture, it is the perfect opportunity uh, for division within NATO. That's why uh, concrete information is going to be so important and why almost no leaders are just jumping the gun and saying, uh, you know, this is going to lead to uh, a retaliation uh, on behalf of NATO against Russia. Although we are hearing from the Ukrainian president, he is calling this an attack on collective security. What do you think the weight of those words will carry with NATO leadership? Well, President Zelensky has been very good at riding the line between uh, thanking NATO and the rest of his supporters uh, and cajoling them to do more. Uh, that is essentially his job. Uh, in the end, though, he has no uh, real say in what NATO does. Uh, he does have a tremendous amount of influence, though. So he's doing his job uh, trying to get NATO to be more involved in Ukraine and, and uh, to speculate what might be the, uh, where, you know, the response of NATO uh, in light of, of this. Uh, it might just be a, an increase in, uh, in armaments or other supplies. Uh, that would be my guess as to what would happen, whether or not this was a targeted attack. Um, uh, that, that will almost certainly happen regardless. So Mr. Zelensky, I think, is, is just doing his job. Uh, NATO is going to be uh, setting aside uh, rush to judgment, and they are going to try to be deliberative uh, and to get uh, that all-important consensus on side. And, of course, we'll keep following the very latest. Uh, Robert Baines, thank you very much for the time tonight. A pleasure. Well, back here in Ottawa, the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, appeared before the Public Order Emergency Commission. Her testimony comes on the same day that an RCMP assessment of the protest was admitted as evidence. Now, in that internal document, it states, while the majority of convoy protesters are peaceful and denounce violence, the possibility of a lone actor attack inspired by motivated beliefs cannot be discounted. That same assessment noted the presence of the Three Percenters flag, a group that's been designated a terrorist entity, and the seizure of firearms at the blockade in Coots, Alberta. Still, Brenda Lucky did not believe all options had been exhausted before the Emergencies Act was invoked, though she did not share that view with federal officials. Take a listen. Did it occur to you that you should make sure that government was aware of your views on these points before it came to land on the invocation of the Emergencies Act? I guess in hindsight, yeah, that might have been something significant. Uh, honestly, um, 
there was so much information going back and forth. I'm not sure, you know, where they were at in in the invocation as such. I know they were talking about it, but um, it was very, very fluid. It, obviously, it, 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 I'm not sure if it would have changed anything in the sense that um, these were even like now I'm going to use my hindsight. The, the plan uh, ended up those those um, authorities ended up to be useful with the plan. Now, we will continue to follow the latest from the Rouleau inquiry for you. Tomorrow, we're expecting to hear from the former president of the Canada Border Services Agency and from Transport Canada officials as well. The Auditor General released several reports today providing oversight into government operations and financial accounts. Karen Hogan focused on topics as wide-ranging as Arctic sovereignty to emergency management in First Nations communities. But it is chronic homelessness and government promises to address it that's taken much of the early attention. Although regardless of issue, there seems to be a common challenge in these government programs. Take a listen. Many of the issues we identify here, um, better, better uh, support and prevention for Indigenous communities, gathering the information to demonstrate that you're getting value for money, are not new issues that we've raised. Um, dealing with the gaps and the aging of equipment for, for the Arctic is, again, not new. Um, the fact that concrete action, there's very little concrete action, is possibly the most frustrating thing in, in that uh, departments know. And so why aren't they taking the actions needed in order to make uh, the lives of Canadians better? Well, let's dig deeper into the AG's report. And joining us right now is Karen Hogan, the Auditor General of Canada. Ms. Hogan, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Now, as we noted, uh, you released several reports today, but, but the one that seems to quickly take in attention is the, the report that has to do with the issue of homelessness. The federal government uh, really investing billions into tackling the problem, but apparently has no idea how effective that money has been. Uh, why is that? Uh, well, you, you've rightly summarized that our, uh, in our audit on chronic homelessness, uh, we found that Infrastructure Canada and Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation were not able to tell us if their efforts to date had actually uh, reduced chronic homelessness. Um, the main reason is really a data gap. Uh, they did not gather the information to measure the results of the programs that they put into place. Um, as a result, we asked for better coordination amongst the two entities so that the government can be in a position to tell us whether or not they will meet their target of reducing chronic homelessness by 50% by 2028. Now, as you say, two main agencies here, uh, CMHC and Infrastructure Canada, billions of dollars, why weren't they collecting data? Um, I have to admit, it's a question I asked myself. Uh, solutions to chronic homelessness are really better put forward when they are data-driven. Uh, the organizations know that. Um, and, and for example, we, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation built units um, that were supposed to be affordable, and they were designated towards um, target vulnerable groups, yet they didn't know whether or not the groups that were intended to actually be housed were ultimately housed in those uh, units. And so it's that measuring of outcomes that's needed instead of just measuring outputs and being able to tell us how many units were built. So that's one practical impact of how a lack of data tracking has perhaps led to an ineffective program. Any other uh, real life impacts this decision has created? 
I think another item I would raise is really about affordability. Uh, we focused in on six programs uh, that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation funds uh, that are meant to help address the, uh, the matters, uh, uh, the goals in the national housing strategy. And we looked at the National Co-Investment Housing Fund, which is a fund that's meant to, to build affordable housing units. And we found that they used a different measure of affordability than the measure used in the national housing strategy. And as a result, uh, units built under this program, for the most part across many of the provinces and territories, were actually unaffordable for low-income households. Mm -hmm. Now, forgive me, I think there'll be some Canadians who, who see your report uh, really roll their eyes and see this as an example uh, of uh, government inefficiency. Uh, what kind of recommendations are you making to, to perhaps tackle this and restore public faith? I think the first and most important recommendation was really to have one of the federal entities take ownership of meeting that target of reducing chronic homelessness by 50% by 2028. There's no leadership in that area. So that's the first step. The second step is really coordinating the programs uh, between uh, the builds that Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation funds and support and the support programs uh, run by Infrastructure Canada reaching home. Uh, individuals experiencing homelessness um, at times don't just need a house, might need other support, might need subsidies, might need uh, assistance uh, with substance abuse or, or mental health services. And really to have that sort of wraparound service that's coordinated and really target individuals is one of the best ways to really make some progress. Now, when, when the government announced its uh, housing strategy, it essentially set out a goal of reducing chronic homelessness by 50% uh, by fiscal 27-28. Do you think that's still possible? Based on everything that we've seen so far, um, the lack of data and, and sort of the siloed approach to some of these programs, we think it's unlikely that the federal government will meet that target of reducing chronic homelessness by 2028. Even if they, they follow your recommendations? I think if they follow our recommendations, they'll get on a good track. Uh, there's just a, right now, there's no data to even know if since the beginning of these programs in 2018, whether there's been an increase or decrease in chronic homelessness. And many of us know that throughout the pandemic, there was uh, a, a larger increase, a lot of pressure on shelters. And, and it is likely that homelessness has increased over the last few years, but the government doesn't have that data. So we don't even know if they're starting from a better place or a worse place than when they launched the National Health Threat. Ms. Hogan, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. It's my pleasure, thanks. Now, government ministers have already come out today to address the AG's report. Among them, our next guest. Ahmed Hussein is the Liberal Member of Parliament for the Ontario Riding of York Southwestern. He is also the Minister of Housing and Diversity and Inclusion. Minister Hussein, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Listen, I want to start here with your reaction. Uh, your government has directed, as you know, billions of dollars into housing. But according to this report, there's apparently no way of knowing if that money has, in fact, helped. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, uh, homeless Canadians are among our country's most vulnerable, and we cannot leave them behind. And that's why we've invested over half a billion dollars through Budget 2022 to continue doubling the annual funding for Reaching Home, which is Canada's homelessness strategy. That means we're now investing nearly $4 billion, which is up 
from just over $2 billion over nine years to really tackle uh, chronic homelessness. We're also really building deeply affordable housing through the Rapid Housing Initiative. So far through the first and second round, we expect to build 10,250 deeply affordable housing units. And through the third round that was announced last week, we we are seeking to add another 4,500 deeply affordable housing units. These are units targeting the most vulnerable Canadians, those experiencing homelessness and those who are at risk of experiencing homelessness. And yet, you, when you cite those numbers, here you have the AG's report essentially pointing out it really is hard to know whether or not those efforts have truly helped. Again, what's your reaction to that conclusion? Well, we know that uh, through Reaching Home, we've already helped thousands of organizations across the country prevent tens of thousands of people from entering homelessness and another tens of thousands of people to exit homelessness and have permanent housing solutions. But we know that there's more work to be done, particularly to get more granular data and to be able to collect data better, to analyze it better and to report it better. And so I really want to thank the Auditor General for the performance audit of the Government of Canada's efforts to tackle chronic homelessness. We welcome their report. We agree with all the findings and recommendations, and we will work to improve the, the data and analysis and collection and reporting okay, uh, so and make sure that we continue to uh, end chronic homelessness in Canada. So you're welcoming all of the conclusions as you say. So what do you then mean by granular data? Exactly what is the difference between what you believe you know and what the AG says you still do not know? Oh, it's not what I believe I know. I mean, through the reporting so far, the data that we have from the uh, community entities, there's 64 community entities represent who disperse money to over a thousand organizations every year who are on the front lines of combating chronic homelessness. They've reported to us, and we have those numbers, uh, that it's, throughout the, the pandemic, they prevented 64,000 individuals. Okay, so, so what from, then, what then is the, up. so what do you understand then to be the, the AG's issue here? Because again, she says, for all the numbers you're quoting, it's still hard to know how effective the money you have spent has been. Yes, so as I was saying, uh, if you had uh, let me finish my answer, basically uh, what the AG uh, has rightly uh, concluded is that we need to recommit to improve the timelines and the speed in which we're able to collect the data and, uh, and, and analyze it and report it from our partners on the ground so that we can track our progress. So we recently launched the results reporting online system to better help this data, and we'll be strengthening this system. The fact of the matter is uh, Reaching Home was launched in 2019, shortly thereafter the pandemic hit. And so the 64 community entities, the thousands of organizations on the front lines, they were hit with a big challenge, which is, you know, they had challenges with respect to collecting and analyzing and reporting the data that we needed them to do because they were focused on really getting people through the storm. And we helped them with a more flexible funding to get people uh, through the pandemic. Now that we're, we're at a better point with respect to the pandemic, we are uh, working with them again to recommit to speedier reporting and collection of data so that we can implement the recommendations of the Auditor General. So so let me rephrase that, if you will, and correct me if I'm wrong here. What you're saying is that you know the money has helped people, but the real-time yes. data and the recording of it just has to catch up to the reality that you're seeing on the ground. Yes, we, we know that that, that uh, the, uh, the money, the funding did come through to really prevent 
tens of thousands of people from experiencing homelessness, from, from entering the pipeline into homelessness. And we know that reaching home dollars also resulted in tens of thousands of people exiting homelessness. What we needed to have the community entities and the organizations do is collect more robust data and analyze it better and report it faster. That wasn't possible because they were facing challenges during the COVID pandemic, and understandably so. They were focused on really getting people through the pandemic. You have to understand that at that time, uh, a lot of these organizations had additional costs and additional challenges to think about. Social distancing, procuring more room for social distancing, more beds, more uh, personal protective uh, equipment, uh, and other services that, that really were imposed on them because of the COVID uh, rules and the COVID uh, health measures. And so we funneled money to them. We, 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 we helped them to procure space and additional equipment and so on. And that was the focus, it was to get people through the pandemic. And we knew that they were facing challenges with respect to data collection. Now that we are at a better point, we are investing in this online reporting system so that those organizations can uh, can help us. We have over 3,300 projects to, okay, run I, by the organizations uh, to, to, Minister, to tackle sorry this, to but we will, we will implement the recommendations. I'm sorry sure. to interrupt, I only have 30 seconds here, but I do have to ask because the Auditor General does not believe your government will reach the goal of reducing chronic homelessness by 50% by the year 27-28. Do you think you'll still reach that goal? Uh, we believe that uh, we have the resources and the political will in Canada uh, through our partners to eliminate chronic homelessness. That requires not just federal government action, but a partnership with provinces, territories, nonprofits across the country. We're making tremendous progress and the better results uh, data collection and, and, and reporting will demonstrate a significant improvement in the uh, reduction of, of homelessness. and. Uh, and progress towards the goal, ultimately, of eliminating chronic homelessness. Minister Hussain, really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. With inflation at near historic highs, Canadians, as we know, are struggling right now to pay for food, gas and housing. It's an issue this country's largest private sector union is taking up as it lobbies federal politicians this week, urging Ottawa to introduce new programs to help out working Canadians. Joining us now is Lana Payne. She's the president of Uniform. Ms. Payne, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So here you are in Ottawa, as we said, talking about your budget priorities for 2023, 2024, but you're also talking a lot about affordability. Uh, talk to us about that priority. Why are you discussing affordability? Really, what are you bringing to the table that politicians don't already know? Well, I think there's a, there's a mood in the country right now, particularly among working people, where they've gone through, like everybody has, this, you know, really, a humongous crisis, the pandemic. And, you know, we come out of that, people are struggling, there's anxiety, then we get high inflation, and now we're getting skyrocketing interest rates, which is causing a great deal of uncertainty out there. And, you know, the possibility of these latest moves uh, by the Bank of Canada shifting us into a recession. And we're already seeing some impacts of this, particularly in some of the sectors where Unifor uh, represents working people. And, you know, how much more pain can workers take? A pandemic and then a recession. I think we need to take a step back, analyze, 
you know, have a proper conversation about re what really is uh, causing these problems with inflation because I think the medicine that currently is being prescribed by the Bank of Canada is, is not what we need to be doing. Okay, build on that because you are pointing out the fact that when you look at the causes of inflation right now, it's arguably less domestic and more foreign. Yes, absolutely. And in our experience, when you look at some of the nations who went in to basically raising their rates earlier and fast, uh, their inflation has not come down because it's not addressing things like global supply chains. It's not changing the war in Russia or, or the war in the Ukraine. It's so, so you know, piling on this pain on top of working people right now, uh, is that really the smart thing we want to do? We want to be able to make sure people have good jobs, that they're able to lift themselves up at this moment in time with a tightening labor market. We've been able to do incredible things at the bargaining table as a result of this. Um, but, you know, not keeping pace with inflation, wages, all of those things for 30 years and you finally get a moment when you can do it and we have the bank swiping in uh, to swooping in to do these things so it's it's a very big challenge right now well in fact you, you accuse the bank of engaging in class warfare right now yes I I know uh, probably uh, hard terms for the bank to hear but the reality is is that they're politicizing what they're doing they had a, a, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada made a statement you know many weeks ago in which he you know advised employers, you know, don't worry about it, don't raise wages, don't get caught into these, you know, putting inflation into long-term contracts. I'm like, come on. And then the second thing after that last week, you know, basically saying the only way we're going to solve inflation is through unemployment. What does he expect the labor movement and unions to say in response to that? Our job is to protect working people. And I actually don't think central bankers know what they're doing right now. I think they're hoping that by you know raising interest rates it's going to have an impact well hope is not good enough and they're causing a lot of damage with these actions so it's like take a step back let's look at what is truly happening out there and uh, you know I'm very concerned that we if we head, in, head into a recession right now it, it's it's going to be very tough for a lot of people in Canada okay let, let's take a step back as well because if what you are saying is that the, the this this current policy doesn't work does it not run the risk of creating domestic inflationary pressures if for example we we, we allow or or the bank allows uh, inflation to be at the rate it is if everybody bumps up salaries for employees does that not then permanently make the high prices people are struggling with right now permanently high. I think there's an equilibrium there and also you have to start thinking about where these high prices are coming from. There's another part of this which the Bank of Canada refuses to talk about and that's the corporate profiteering that's happening right now. I mean if you look at the second quarter of 2022, corporate profits in Canada were at the highest level ever at 25 percent share of GDP. Previous, like before the pandemic, five years leading into it, the average was 15 percent. This is a huge problem, which is why some of the things we're saying to politicians this week is they have to find a way to capture some of that wealth and return it back to Canadians. We're doing our job at the collective bargaining table. They have to do more as well. So in terms of policy, in terms of what you hope your meetings, because it's a week worth of meetings with, yes. I believe, about 100 MPs while you're in Ottawa, what do you hope comes out of it in practical terms? Well, there's a number of things that they can do. Fixing EI certainly is really important, especially if we're heading into a recession. We have to have a robust program to support workers. So it in applies their... to more people than it currently exactly. does. Exactly. 
Um, and obviously around the corporate profit side, it's really important that they look at, for example, the excess uh, profit tax that is currently applied to financial institutions and banks. They could put that on other sectors of the economy, capture some of that wealth, return it to, for example, low-income Canadians in targeted programming, and it could really help a lot with the, the fact that low-income folks deal with inflation and are impacted by it more than, more than others. So we could, there are things that we could do here and uh, without using the sledgehammer of, of higher interest rates against everybody. Uh, very quickly, losing time here, is your message catching on, do you think? We've had some really great conversations, actually, with, with MPs uh, from all across, uh, from every single party. And uh, I think they understand, too, the moment we're in. Uh, the problem becomes, what are the solutions? And so that's what we've been doing this week, this week giving them solutions. Okay. Lana Payne, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks so much. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.